This obviously made a huge impact on me to be living as a Navajo, you know, being guest of actually a revolutionary woman who named Catherine Smith, but it's a matriarchal society and she dressed um, in her traditional dress with the squash blossoms and the big skirt and the government, they came to with their cars and sirens and to to kick them off the land. This was in the 70s, this was not when I was there. And she got on horseback with her rifle and shooting it and defended the land. Wow. Maria Dantos was born to a gregarious Greek immigrant father and a Mayflower compact mother. She grew up in her family-run haunted hotel in Vermont with safety and freedom to play and explore her imagination. Immersed in abundant love, she developed a worldview of social justice and the importance of removing the inequity in education. Maria is an educator to her core, with 15 years of teaching, administration and educational reform experience. She's worked with people of diverse backgrounds to advocate for justice in education as a means of upward social mobility for minority, female and otherwise less advantaged people. Her work reflects the importance of lifelong education and encouraging curiosity. She founded and led multiple daycare, pre-kindergarten, education programmes and schools of up to 100 students. Driven by her conviction that every child deserves to have access to quality education, led her to launch her non-profit, Philox, to provide humanitarian relief and education to underserved at-risk children in humanitarian areas of concern. Maria is also seeking to collaborate with educators, healthcare workers, community organisers and artists to provide solutions for at-risk children in this time of crisis. She's applied her organisational management and creative skills to work as a producer on several live events, short films, documentaries and one feature-length film. She's also collaborated with members of Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble, the Lincoln Centre and with Bank Street College at Columbia University here in New York. In part one of this two-parter, we cover Maria's early years and the serendipity that led her to education. In part two, we cover her work in educational development and her perspectives on the future impact that COVID-19 is going to have on education and child development. I hope you enjoy the caring, compassion and commitment of Maria Dantos. So I have to start off with a big thank you to James Clark for recommending that we interview you. So big shout out to Jim Clark. So before we start, Maria, we always like to dive into uh, a guest's life before what they have to have. They've spent their life in their area and career focus. In your case, we'd like to explore your early life before your life in education. So perhaps you could start with where you grew up. And I believe it's probably where you're near to now in the Upper Valley in, is it Connecticut or is it New Hampshire? Uh, it's on the border of New Hampshire and Vermont. So there's kind of a halfway up uh, and right on the on the River Valley. There's kind of a, a circle that encompasses both New Hampshire and Vermont towns. So it's it's kind of a bit of both. But yeah, it's it's rural and it's also um, where Dartmouth College is. So it, yeah. I've never been up that part of the world, but uh, it's bad. That I've been here 10 years and I never ventured that far north. So at some point I need to. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe once the lockdown's over and fall comes and before the next lockdown comes, <laughs> head up there. So talk to us about your your parents, what they did, your upbringing, your siblings. So my parents, my father is the child of Greek immigrants, was born in Massachusetts, Andover, Massachusetts, in the, the height of the Depression and grew up there. My mother is... Um, 16 years younger, so a different generation, but they met in Massachusetts 
where my father was doing business and he's an entrepreneur. He was a businessman, a hospitality mostly for over 50 years. And actually it took over his father's business when his father died during, he was serving in the Korean war in the U S but took over the family business and partnered with his uncle and went from there. And so they met in, um, I think 1969 and, uh, married in 70 and they're very different people, very come from very different backgrounds. But your mother's not Greek. My mother's not Greek. She's uh, she's kind of Mayflower compact. One, uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, and um, she's tall and blonde, and she was, uh, you know, speaks French, and she was an art history major, and uh, was modeling at the time. And my father is uh, maxed out at probably five five foot four, and uh, you know is is dark and uh, gregarious, and so they've they've made quite a quite a pair. They've their 49th year of marriage. So. Wow. Yes. And what about siblings? Um, so fr- my father had a previous marriage uh, in the 50s and I have one half brother named David who's 55 or so. And with this marriage with the same mother is uh, my brother, Mark, who turned 48 yesterday. So what about their, their role in your upbringing? Um, with a very gregarious father and, a sli- and your mother being different, what, what was their influence and impact on your development of your own self-belief? Well, one was that our our similarities outweigh our differences, certainly. Um, there were a lot of things that they had to overcome in terms of the backgrounds that they came from and how those intertwined. Uh, my mother was, I guess, uh, immediately embraced or by his family, but perhaps not the other way around. Although actually, oddly enough, my my maternal grandmother was the one who introduced them. <laughs> but she didn't think that they were going to get married. So I think they had a very, always being in hospitality when I grew up, They, um, my father had a hotel in White River, Vermont. And so it was every night was, you know, the full dining room, the chef with the with the high hat and she was in a cocktail dress and he was, you know, knew everybody in town. And it was a very continuous party in a lot of ways or a continuous uh, gatherings, a lot of um, a lot of people around knowing a lot of different types of people and very interesting, very upbeat. I loved it. I loved running around the hotel and running around and playing hide and seek in a in an old Vermont hotel is the best for children. And for some reason, I'm thinking of The Shining. I've just got this image of uh, you on a little scooter and uh, Jack Nicholson coming along with an axe. <laughs> I got the chills when you said that. I was like, oh. It was uh, it was definitely haunted. I, I, there's some. I mean, it just went on for wings and wings and different uh, different characters. But the uh, the real characters were were more interesting. Were were certainly diverse and um, you know who who comes in for for the Dartmouth uh, reunions and all of that. I mean, I know that you're. We'll get on to talk about your perspectives on education and your philosophy on that. But it sounds like you had a very safe environment yourself where play was, your freedom to play was central, allowing you to nurture your own curiosity. But how did their, how did your parents sort of try and nurture you and encourage you educationally? Do you have any memories or reflections on that? From that time, I mean, I just remember being 
very free because I was, I guess, um, was early, you know, early childhood before I was at school. And so my first time crossing the street, but knowing that everybody, you know, it was really like the Truman Show where where everybody knew who I was or, you know, would make sure that uh, I could cross the street or. And so one time they sent me down to the next door restaurant and the woman uh, who owned it gave me a, a, you know, a pad to order, to do the orders and allowed me to go up to the tables and just draw hamburgers or draw their, you know, a salad or their, uh, their order and go into the kitchen and, and put in the order. So I think just allowing for that kind of, that kind of jovial freedom and then certainly being outside. So as I grew, having the great outdoors as kind of, uh, as a resource to, to build anything. We, we built a, you know, a pretend skiway and we published a magazine and made a, an international peace center out of one of my friend's barns, you know, this type of thing. And so we were always, uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on in terms of just, you know, activities like the children do now where they're always going to soccer or singing or, you know, practicing something. So we used a lot of creativity and, and kind of made our own worlds. So what about the, the Greek influence? So that was always kind of because of the, the demographic of the town. There, are, there were two other Greek families in the town, but one was a, a Professor Rassius, uh, I don't know if you know of him, um, a famous linguist in, um, at Dartmouth. And then one was the family that owned the pizza parlor. So it was, there was no Greek church. There was no really Greek community. So it was, we were very much, you know, and they were very much assimilated, obviously. And it didn't really come up in my mind in a lot of ways. It only, it would be at holidays, Greek Easter, obviously. So we would see my, my father's family, his sisters and cousins and everything, a large extended family and have very big parties and with the lamb on the spit and everything. But it didn't really, uh, at one point I remember him saying, we're, we're wasps with Greek traditions. And so he kind of left it at that. I think in many ways during the generation that he was coming of age, he wanted to assimilate for as many, you know, for whatever reasons and, uh, and not accentuate that. Although he's, his first name is Phidias, which is a huge, you know, and his cousin's name is Hercules. So it's very hard to, to downplay, <laughs> you know, your roots when that's the case. <laughs> but and I, and not to say that he downplayed his roots, but I think upplayed the, you know, his kind of universal charm. And, and so it actually didn't really occur to my brother and I until we went to Greece with them. And all of a sudden, we're in the taxi cab from the airport and my father's speaking fluently, you know, <laughs> knowing all of You're this. like, where's this come from? <laughs> it, it, was, uh, it was very eye-opening, certainly. But it, it comes up, it comes up later in my life that I was more more interested in in understanding that side than, for instance, than my brothers were. So I speak Greek fluently, and neither of my brothers can really order a meal. So it's it's interesting, interesting where that has taken us, and you know, and the value to which it was perceived. I have a question actually on that, Mark. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go but, ahead. Yeah. But do you think, Maria, that was part because uh, it was the mother's influence that she pushed you to become, to embrace more the Greek culture? Because since the boys had, your brothers had a different mother and 
they had not had that attachment to any Greek cultures and you did? I mean, does that come, do you think that was, had something to do with your, with your curiosity or more with the fact that maybe your mother had pushed you more than your fr- brother's mothers? No, well, so one brother is from both of my parents. Uh, ah, okay. One is from, and actually, oddly, he grew up uh, knowing my grandmother. So my my grandfather was long deceased. But so his, actually, my oldest brother's first language was probably also Greek because mm. he was he was taken care of by my grandmother uh, as a child. And so she would, you know, sit him, prop him up and feed him. And, but then, then that kind of, as, as she, she had dementia and then she um, died. So that was not part of his regular life going forward because he has, because mm-hmm. he's American. My mother didn't have very many relatives, actually. She has a very small, she has one uh, brother and his wife and they have no children. And so that's the end of that family. And so she was, she very much embraced Greek culture. Mm. She cooks moussaka. She, you know, she can dance very well in the, in the lines. She can speak pretty well. She can get around for sure. So I, yeah, I'm not sure. I think, you know, my interest in, in different cultures in general, what is different from, from my brothers, but also I think I had an experiences where I realized that that had been an influential part of my father's upbringing and the curiosity behind why he had chosen to marry an American and uh, when when that generation was all marrying kind of within within their community, although they were very assimilated in, in Andover and there was no Greek church there either or, or community. But I think the what stuck with me is probably, which he very rarely mentions even to this day, was the the, the otherness and, and what it took even for a successful business person to assimilate and to not be considered um, other or, or inferior in some way. Yeah, because that must have been a challenge to come across as a first generation and to come to a community that probably didn't have many other Greek people and build a life and a successful career that must live with you. We always ask the question around growing up with scarcity or abundance. It sounds like a very abundant upbringing. Abundant with love, for sure. Uh Abundant with love. There were, because when his, uh, he was 19 when his father died, so he was not able to, he was given the choice by the family, um, by his uncles, you know, and, and his mother, if he would go on to university, finish university, or to take over the store and, and partner with his uncle and take care of his mother, essentially, and the, the sisters. And he chose to do that, which I think obviously a defining moment in his life. So in many ways, he had to, he, he overcame many different obstacles, but one of which was not, not having the formal education. And so along the way, he teamed up with his partner was, you know, was a Harvard graduate, also five foot four, very interesting combination of kind of just uh, the yin and yang. So long story short, I think it, it was never consistent. I think with a with an entrepreneurial background, without with kind of uh, he called it a house of cards or smoke and mirrors, you know. And so there were years when he um, he flew a private plane. He had a, a 
Cessna, a twin command team, and um, a four-seater and would fly uh, for his business and uh, later down the, down the line. But then there were times when I think I didn't know, obviously, as a child, but that there um, were tough, very tough times. So I think it was, uh, and I think this is part of probably what what remained with me was understanding that his his humility never changed, no matter how, you know, whether we were in the plane going to the Bahamas for a vacation or if we were, you know, some years Santa brought oranges and, and walnuts, you know, in the stocking. And so that always stuck with me also. And, and as well with my mother, never changed her character. Uh-huh. So you never sensed it was, as you say, abundance with love, regardless of the economic situation. Right. Right. Okay. Oh, interesting. Let's talk about education. What was the school and educational experience like for the young Maria? So that was one, certainly a value that both of them held highly, both my parents held highly and was a big, big part of my life and what we were, what we were expected to, to do. And so I was educated my primary years here in, in the Upper Valley Public School. And then when I was uh, 12, I believe, I went to boarding school in, um, in Massachusetts, which was, uh, you found Pomfret. Pomfret, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was later. So for <laughs> two years, I went to um, a school called Fay School in... Uh, called what? Fay School, F-A-Y, in, in Southboro, Massachusetts. And so that was for eighth and ninth grade, and then went on to Pomfret for high school years in Connecticut. And that, again, also piqued my curiosity, you know, and it's kind of ironic because I think people believe, you know, assumption is that it's a very homogenous society, you know, group and um, at the elite boarding schools. But I met people that I wouldn't have ever, ever otherwise met, not perhaps through Dartmouth connections, but um, people from all around the world and children, you know, especially as children living together and breaking bread and being in your pajamas and everything, becoming really brothers and sisters with people of all different uh, walks of life was was very interesting. Because the, the reading about Pomfret School, it said it has a mission to, its mission is to cultivate a healthy independence of body, mind and spirit and to prepare students uh, for college and to lead and learn in di- a diverse and increasingly interconnected society. Is that a fair reflection of the experience of going to that that school, and and has it had an impl- influence on your subsequent life and career? Absolutely, yes. Well, aside from you know, just from meeting different friends and being they they did make you do academics were until one o'clock. We had a six day school school week, so it was through you know Monday through Saturday. But at one or one thirty, they made you do, or we were, you know, required to do an art uh, of some sort, visual or creative, or musical. I did usually. I was in plays or doing uh, acting, and then they made you do, a, you know, a sport each season. So I was not terribly athletic going into it, but then I think that that helped broaden horizons and kind of push you into a different comfort zone. Um, so I ended up playing ice hockey and coxing for crew and taking chances. 
and meeting a lot of different wonderful people from from different backgrounds. And probably the best indication of that or the best um, example of, of the mission was that one day they had a sign up that said, apply for a, a scholarship for the summer. It was, it was the springtime and um, it said to Numazu, Japan <laughs> for an ambassadorial scholarship. And I was 14 and just kind of thought, well, you know, I'll give it a, a chance. I'll, you know, it's worth writing the essay. And I guess I had taken a Japanese class or something at the, at the previous school. So I thought, well, I have a little knowledge of Japanese culture, but not much. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, I got back to my dorm room and there was, back then it was the paper tickets, you know, and there was a paper ticket taped to my door and my roommate, uh, who was from Bangkok said, you know, they just came by. I think you're going wow. to. <laughs> uh, wonderful. And it was, yes, it was wonderful. And I had not told, told my parents that I had applied for that and they were. <laughs> Where in Japan? Well, we went everywhere. I was the only, you know, recipient. So I was kind of taken around to, to Tokyo and to Kyoto, but we were living in, uh, I lived with a family in Numazu, Japan which was about an hour west of Tokyo. And it was, obviously, it was a fabulous, by the time we uh, encouraged my parents to allow me to go uh, to Japan at 14 years old, alone. Um, <laughs> that must have been quite a culture shock for your, a Greek father and, and your mother, the way you described her as Mayflower, what was it, mini Mayflower? Or? Mayflower Compact, yes. Mayflower Compact, yeah. To then be thrust into Japan. Japanese culture, which isn't known for its cosmopolitan embrace of other cultures. Right. How did you assimilate that? And what did you learn from that experience? It was set up by a, an educator, by a, a man who owned um, and ran Juku schools, the cram schools in Numazu. And I guess he had set it up in, in the memory of, of a teacher at, in his memory. And so he himself was a was in his fifties probably at the time, and a, you know businessman. But he saw an opportunity for he he had hopes of an you know of a ambassadorial bridge. He kept always talking about bridging and and you know fostering connections of, of peace through through friendships, and that was very important to him. And so they were very good to me, and he brought me around to many different places. And then I would stay with different families. And it was the summer and being 14, you know, I brought a Frisbee for the children, you know, and they had never seen one. I mean, it was a very different, but it was magical. It was a, a wonderful time in life to, to kind of see life or see, you know, a, a household, kind of everything at a 180 degree slant, you know, just- Well, I can imagine even- even from a culinary standpoint, going from eating in the hotel with a full chef ensemble to sushi and Japanese cuisine must have been quite a shock. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember one morning at kind of, because we were still going to school. First, I guess it was still going throughout the summer. So I was attending a high school there. And one morning they had bought me a, a McDonald's hamburger, thinking that that would delight me. And so it was six in the morning and they they kind of said, here you go, here's a, you know, a McDonald's hamburger. And I ate it at six in the morning and just 
<laughs> but it was it was amazing to make friendships and and then Mr. Hidasugi comes up back in my life about 20 years later when he came to New York and and came to my school and actually had me back to to Japan as kind of um to discuss options of creating a school together there so it's he obviously was a, has been a very influential mm-hmm. part of my life yeah because you went on after after school when you went to university to UPenn to study ethnography do you think that experience in Japan was that influential in taking you down that direction certainly certainly and continue to to love seeing how people come to solutions from different places from not everybody thinks the same way and it's even recently when i went back to see mr hidasugi i was fascinated by just uh things that we we don't have here that it doesn't make sense that we don't have here but just infrastructure at the airport or or different technologies and yeah, that was certainly a big, a big part of it, for sure. So, at what point did you, did your interest in education form and decide that that was the track you were going to take in life? September eleventh. <laughs> really? Wow. I was not intending to go into education, so I had another uh, serendipitous. Uh, experience. But in in Philadelphia, I ended up running a design build company for kind of industrial design while I was attending school. And that kind of led to, so I was doing business management and that most likely would have just continued to be my path, I suppose. Then when I moved, I graduated undergrad and that was, you know, you, you can't get very far with cultural anthropology or, you know, ethnography, uh, doesn't buy you a cup of coffee, let alone pay the rent in New York. So, well, I've met a few people in my advertising career that were strategic planners that studied ethnography, and it comes in very handy. There you go. If I yeah. had related, perhaps yes, it could have, but not right at right out of college. Yeah. I was not going to do the trick at that time. So, my first job in New York was managing a, a dot com, a, a streaming media that they called it back then, uh, which is now what, what everybody's doing. But we were doing concerts uh, and live productions. And I was the business manager of that. But you've heard the stories of the dot-com. Yeah. So it was kind of all-encompassing production and, and business management there. And so you asked how I got into education. So then I was living downtown in, and working in Soho. I was living in Chinatown in a five-floor walk-up. And September 11th, obviously, everything was brought to a, a halt. And Where were you when it happened? I was actually, I was on my way back to New York from Philadelphia. And then I was visiting friends and then I said, okay, I couldn't get back into my home. Everything was condemned. And the the companies were, you know, nobody was doing anything for quite a while. As uh, Were you in New York as well? No, I was in London at the time. Okay. So, but you, you can imagine. Or oh, was, yeah. I was in New York, September. In New York. Yeah, working downtown. Yeah. Like on West, uh, Tribeca, like kind of Tribeca's, you know, below canal. So, yeah, I know. It feels like we're at another, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I compared this moment a little bit of what okay, this is a more of an extended amount of time, but I feel like that same fear, anxiety, or weird thing is what I had lived during, you know, September 11, after, 
It's a, it's so you agree, yeah. Kind of a before and after. And then, yes, it, it good said, you know, oh, you, you'll go back to Penn. I said, no, I will never go back to Philadelphia. And yeah, so September 11th hit. So you hit September 12th, everyone was shut down. September 12th, I started my master's program at Penn because they allowed alumni to just enroll right away and uh, and not, you know, take your GREs on the back end and kind of do the application on the back end. So I got a job at undergraduate admissions, which, uh, and started taking classes for, for my MSED. And that was, yeah. What did you do? What did you do with your apartment in Chinatown? I guess we gave up. It was, it was another woman that I was living with who was working at Martha Stewart that obviously that you know, nothing was happening. So we just, I think everybody just moved. We just kind of, and I didn't have many belongings and I ended up just moving back to kind of a, uh, you know, I guess a familiar, a familiar place where I knew people and knew the terrain and obviously Penn and just, just started back. That was how it, it ended up. I knew that I was either going to go back for my MBA or or something, and you know, it was either going to continue on the path where I was working with with finance and and business management, or you know, or needing to to think about my real passion. And so it ended up that education seemed like the right approach, and it it probably was one of the only majors that I could just go right into. And and so that's serendipity. It's a it was not planned out, but it ended up being a, a beneficial thing. You talked about your passion being education. So even so, you, this gave you the opportunity to focus on something that you were passionate about. A lot of people, regardless of their area of passion, uh, don't look at it in terms of, let's say, from a in the context of reform and change and let's say social justice. You've gone down quite a sort of a specific route in education. Could you maybe just explain what the foundations of those principles that you stand by and what influenced your belief that I read that you described when you were created your um, Upper Valley preschool, it was called anti-preschool and a more holistic approach to education. And I read somewhere that it was Brooklyn comes to Manhattan. <laughs> that was the journalist. Yeah, saying that. But it's but it is interesting that you've your approach to education is based on creating a more equitable opportunities for people. So what drove those the social values that underpin your journey? I think a couple of things. So uh, rewind to to undergraduate years. During my junior year, you know, many many students your time to go abroad or to study a, a different language or in another place and Again, I guess it was serendipity, but I was involved with with people at the law school at Penn, and one of whom was one professor was working with the Navajo Nation on tribal law, and there they were having a it continues on, but it's a land dispute between quote unquote land dispute between the Hopi and the Navajo out in in Arizona, and I ended up spending my my time that would have been spent abroad there on Navajo Nation and living on the reservation and working with with the tribal government and also uh, herding sheep and making fry bread and uh, all sorts of different things. But learning about sustainable, we we built a hay bale house, uh, a hogan, kind of a, a round home, but 
learning about really living off of the grid. It was uh, the Navajo had no electricity or running water infrastructure. And this was by design. It's, it's a very, very complicated scenario. But then across the, the dirt road, the Hopi did have this uh, infrastructure of, of electricity, water, um, whatever else. And so this obviously made a huge impact on me to be living as a Navajo, you know, being guest of actually a revolutionary woman who named Catherine Smith. And she was a, a just a, a woman, just a, um, but it's a matriarchal society. And she, she dressed um, in her traditional dress with the squash blossoms and the big skirt and the government were, were trying to, you know, they, they came to with their cars and sirens and to, to kick them off the land. This was in the seventies. This was not when I was there. And she got on horseback with her uh, rifle and shooting it and defended the land. Wow. It was unbelievable that her tenacity and her, her um, legacy. What was her role in the tribe? Uh, elder, they call you know, elder, yeah. At the time, you know, at the time, maybe she was probably in her in her fifties, though, still on horseback, telling the feds to get off her land, and in her limited English, probably, and just uh, that she was basically she was not going alive. So they actually they backed down and they left, and she became obviously a huge symbol of the resistance. And the name Catherine Smith doesn't sound like a Navajo Indian elder. <laughs> yes, it's, I know it's uh, a lot of the names, obviously, I don't know how that happened. Actually, yeah. But yeah, I'll send you a picture of her. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So that was another fortunate serendipitous coincidence kind of thing. But I ended up living with her for, for months and on her family and she, as I said, she didn't speak much English, but we communicated and certainly just having that kind of presence as, as the matriarch, you know, if we wanted to borrow the truck or the chainsaw, or everybody had to ask Catherine. And at that time, she was probably at least in her 80s by the time I was there. And she would just, you know, she had to give authorization for everything and, uh, and was, was calling the shots and was a very well-respected, obviously, elder and and uh, revolutionary. So I think, sorry, back to the, the question, but that was a huge, being there and being at the schools, being at the, uh, with the tribal government, seeing how poverty is systematic in many ways, or in in this situation, they, you know, the government was trying to give options of, you know, or not options, but it was called the relocation. And so they were saying, well, you know, we'll give you um, homes, mobile homes, just 20 miles from here. But the the Navajo worldview is that they're they're deeply connected to the land on which they live. They believe they come from the land and then bury their umbilical cords and, and continue to live, you know, they're very connected to the land and it's, it's sacred to them. So that doesn't work in that scenario that they could just go 20 miles just because there was uranium there. That didn't mean anything to them. And so there was a lot of systematic kind of marginalization. And also talk about assimilation was that, you know, the radio was playing 
in Navajo in the, uh, and we were, you know, cooking over fires and they were, you know, shearing sheep and it wouldn't work that then she would, you know, then get a job at Walmart. That wasn't going to, um, those two worlds were never going to really collide or, you know, uh, integrate. And so seeing the schools on the reservation and, and then having friends who had been kidnapped, you know, and put in, in, BIA um, boarding schools for the purpose of assimilation. In boarding schools? Sorry? You said DIA? Oh, BIA, sorry. BIA. Bureau of Indian Affairs. Oh, okay. Which until some point in the 70s, I believe, was part of the War Department here. So this, it all became very clear. Well, what living in poverty, you know, what living actually in poverty does to people and does to the spirit of a community. I'm sorry. The arts. And that that people are a a product of their environments. And so if they're given nothing or disrespect or, or, uh, you know, lack of something or or there was a kind of a, a false competition created between the Hopi and the Navajo who had lived symbiotically for for centuries. But once that was kind of, uh, they were put as rivals, it uh, destroyed, you know, it destroyed the people's emotionally. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of pain health-wise, access to nutrition, um, sanitation. Right now, certainly they're dealing with a big struggle of not having running water in a, in a time when access to to sanitation is extremely important and addiction, but still having this kind of pride and um, not backing down this resistance, this kind of uh, overall activism in that way. Okay. So that's, and that's still happening today. It was very cleverly set up by the, where the land was actually given to the tribes, but in trust considered. And so basically the hundred years of all of that is is up now in for many reservations, and that's becoming an issue now because now the government's trying to take back. But of course, the worldviews were so different at the time, and it didn't all of this legal jargon and uh, I mean the the wading through the legal papers are was uh, extensive for for any legal expert, let alone you know tribal people bucolic, you know, living as, uh, as shepherds. So it's ongoing, but I was definitely there long enough that it wasn't a visit. It was, it was really living that reality with, you know, to whatever degree, obviously as a, as an outsider, but at the same time doing the, the chores around the, around the land and, and being part of that, a family there and seeing that, that the addiction and the malnutrition or whatever, that this was not part of their cultural heritage. This was not the way that they believed. Obviously the casinos, this type of thing, that wasn't, that wasn't on the Navajo reservation, but that people are products of, of the environment that they're given and the, the opportunities and the access to human rights and, and dignity. So that was, that was one large influence on that. And the other was um, what I had told you when we met about the my first time teaching in, in New York. I came up, so after I finished my graduate school in, in education, I received an Excelsior Fellowship 
to come up and teach, uh, go back to New York and teach, you know, throughout, through this program. And it uh, ultimately, they ended up saying, okay, you live in Queens. I was living in Astoria at the time. And they said, okay, you're being placed in Far Rockaway at two different, do you remember this story? So, yeah. And that is a long way, that's a fair distance from Queens. Very, yes. It's, and technically it's the same borough, but it, it was, you know, you would have to go back into Manhattan, down through Brooklyn, and then back to Queens. So it was quite a, quite a haul, which I was still, you know, had the, uh, had the energy and the, you know, enthusiasm to do it. But they, because I was teaching English as a second language, they put me at two different schools, one on one end of Rockaway and one on the other end. And they were extremely disparate racially, socioeconomically, and the provisions that we were, you know, that were allowed funding wise, et cetera. And because it wasn't, you know, one year I did it in the Peace Corps and one year I did it in, you know, Iceland or something like that, it was two days. It was Monday, I was in one school, Tuesday, I went to the other, Wednesday, the other, Thursday. So going back and forth. And having so, the same children, sorry. So you were seeing quite disparity between the two schools. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And just confusing to me, even having some understanding of, of how things worked. Uh, it was heartbreaking. It was very tricky to reconcile that with myself and with, you know, obviously they were all my my babies. It was elementary school, so they were five and six and seven. And So you could witness the development and the pace of development based on their economic situation and the levels of support they were getting within the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And down to just one school had computers and one school didn't have construction paper. And that that's a real easy way to show children how much they matter and how much they mean to society and to you know what their worth is. And how much that affects children in their trajectory. So it was that, those two experiences led you to focus on preschool and to develop your more holistic approach? No. No? Because <laughs> after that, uh, that one year, I, you know, was pretty, pretty aware that there was room for change and, and for reform in which there's, it certainly remains. But I ended up working with... Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on an after-school project and different different nonprofits for educational reform and for projects for for different communities. And it no, it wasn't until kind of later that uh, early childhood never came up, never came up as an interest in my life whatsoever. It did not strike me as as an academic interest of uh, or or really a an interest at all, but I ended up directing a school, different schools, and then one of the the jobs ended up being at a at a preschool. So, and it was a very interesting. The woman was from Haiti. She had built it. It was very creative. It was very community minded. It was it was very exciting. It was very interesting. And um, where was it? That was in New York on on the Upper West Side, but it certainly had evidently, uh, well, I got very close with a, a lot of the community members and the teachers, and 
eventually um, people said, you know, you kind of have your own concept or, you know, kind of your own philosophy and you should open your own. And I said, no, that sounds crazy. <laughs> That's, um, and the where serendipity plays in was one teacher quit and one uh, family took their child out of the school and wrote me a check to a company that I didn't have for a school that I didn't wow. have a lease for. I didn't. And that was pushing me into the, into the deep end and kind of um, had so much faith that I could do it, that they were willing to take those risks and they knew that I wasn't about to let anyone down. So, so that was the beginning of Upper Valley. That's how it started, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. The people that wrote you the check must have had an amazing experience and faith in your, to say, go and open a one a one child school. Yeah, it really, I mean, to this day, she remains a huge role model to me and just uh, advocate, obviously, yeah, to have that. And, and the woman who, who quit her job as, you know. So you did it by um, opening it in a two bedroom apartment in the Upper West Side. And I, I've heard you describe it as fusing citizenship building in Montessori with the visual arts component of, uh, and Bettina will kill me if I get this wrong, Reggio Emilia, and interactive, the interactive display influence of Bank Street. Where did that vision to fuse these different elements come from? I think because, well, a couple of reasons, but one, because I didn't have a background in early childhood education. So I was really studying it for the first time and thinking about it and and learning from the different teachers that I was interviewing and everybody had a different background and kind of dogma does not appeal to me. And rather, I like to kind of draw from different fields of um, thought. And also that what I had learned where it's relevant was that my studies were in, were in linguistics, so language acquisition. And I was kind of trying to apply it to just knowledge acquisition in general and where children don't or learners don't all learn in the same way with the same presentation methods. So drawing from the different, the different fields of thought and the pedagogies uh, was appealing to me because it allowed for, I guess, a more holistic or more diverse experience for the children instead of kind of trying to fit them into something that we wanted or, or that we thought was right, kind of allowing it to be form, it, form itself around them. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.